The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. After suddenly losing her husband at only 50 years old, Gay Clark experienced the heartache of being a widow. And through that experience, she observed some ways that even well-meaning believers perhaps don't realize ways they could be of greater assistance to those in such difficulty. She writes some things that I think are worth noting. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services shows that one-third of all married women will be widowed by age 60, and by age 65, half of them will. Nine of ten baby boomers will outlive their husbands. And so she will write some ways to help us think about that. She explains from her own life that a widow's deepest pain lasts longer than a year. After the cards and the letters and the visits may drop off, friends return to their normal lives, and yet the hardest work is just beginning. A grieving widow's pain is unique and volatile. Every person is different, and grief like a virus can wax and wane. In fact, she writes, I think very wisely, that a close friend is much more likely to be a blessing to a widow than a newly hired pastor who does not have a length of relationship with her. She further says that a grieving widow is often physically and emotionally exhausted, so graciously accept her no thank you if you invite her to dinner, and she says, not now. She may simply need to rest. She tells from her own story how a grieving widow loves her children. When her husband died, she had two sons still. The day of her husband's funeral, her sons were in college, and students from college came and attended the funeral. One of her college son's professors met with him every Friday for years to have breakfast with him, to check in on him. She concludes, loving a widow's children is loving the widow. She further writes how widows have natural needs. When uh, her husband Jim died, there was an ice storm where she lived that crippled the city. And one of the men from her church came over and was helping out with the tree that had fallen through a roof. He said this, Well, I'm just waiting on the insurance company to call me, and I can wait here working a chainsaw as easily as pace the floor at home. A grieving widow's life is not a tragedy but a gift, she writes. So when she's ready, encourage her to serve and don't shelve her for the rest of her life. She further writes that a grieving widow's finances may dramatically change after the loss of her husband. She may have life insurance policies, long-term savings plans, and all sorts of things that are confusing. After her husband's death, two of his friends, one an accountant and the other a senior bank vice president, helped her to work out a budget based on her new lower income. She writes about this. Every time they left my home, a piece of my burden went with them. Now, today's passage is one of those passages that tells us how the gospel should shape the way we treat people in need. In particular, it'll talk about how the gospel compels us to treat those who are widowed. And this would impact the way we structure societies through legislation and through action. It would impact the way we live in our homes. And it also needs to impact the way we, as a manual, operate as a congregation. So the title of today's sermon is The Gospel and Those in Need. Hopefully you received a bulletin when you came in. Those have four sections that I think the text breaks into. So four sections I think the text 
breaks into. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1,179. You need the Bible open, so 1179. And that'll help you follow along as we work through this passage that talks about how God wants us to help those who are in need, especially those who are widows. So 1 Timothy 5 is sort of a change in the book. He's been dealing with false teachers. He's talked about leaders. And now he talks about how we care for those in need. If you're one of those people who really pays close attention, that, that that's a great thing. You'll notice we didn't deal with chapter 4, 12 through 16. And I want you to know we're, we're going to next Sunday, Lord willing, because I think it connects well with 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25, which is about the office of elder. Okay, So we're going to deal with the office of elder, Lord willing, next Sunday again. But right now, how the church helps those in need. And number one on your bulletin, the gospel compels pastor teachers to appropriately exhort both genders in all ages in the love of Christ. And so just so you're not confused, he's going to spend verses three through 16 on widows, but first one through two talks about the culture the whole church should have. If you're thinking, how are those related? Well, the culture the whole church has actually prepares us to deal with those in need. You see? All right, so verses 1 through 2 is how the whole church has a certain kind of culture, and and this is how it is. And it comes from their leaders, verse 1. Do not rebuke. Who is Paul speaking to? Who needs to not rebuke? Well, Timothy, but also those functioning in pastor, elder, shepherding roles like he was. So the leaders of the church, it's very important they set the tone in the way they interact with other brothers and sisters. So verse 1, leaders should not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. I I love how clear verses one and two are. There's only two verbs in it. One is a do not do it this way. And the other is a do it this way. So do not in your manner as a leader rebuke, but in your manner as a leader Exhort, the ESV translates encourage, but the Greek word is, is definitely broader than that because exhort could include correction or it could include further information, but the manner is not a censorious rebuke. The manner is still of support and encouragement. We're going to come back to that in just a second, but notice something that would be easy to skip over. The church has both older and younger folks, and the church has both men and women. And it's led by these leaders. Uh, we lived in Ann, Ann Arbor for years. I'm still a big Michigan fan. Um, I met someone at Sola the other day who is an Ohio State alum, and it really tested my walk with the Lord, but <laughs> it, it, it ended well. Uh, when I was in Ann Arbor, we saw these yard signs all over, and the yard sign said, Finally, a church for young professionals. And that yard sign did not sit well with me at all. I mean, the adverb finally to describe a church that's thousands of years old didn't seem to make much sense. But then to say that we're only looking to draw young professionals. We, we should note that the Bible does not intend that. As Southern Baptists, we should be careful as well because Southern Baptists have to admit also that we sometimes have legacy churches that tend to cater towards the taste of the older generation. And then to kind of keep the gospel going, we tend to plant young churches that really only cater to the young generation. But this is actually happening because we've forgotten what a church is. So in chapter 3, we read in verse 14 and 15 that the church is God's Household. So let me be really clear. The church is not a vendor catering to the taste of consumers. 
The church does not exist to be a business targeting a specific demographic. The church is the household of God for all ages, for all peoples who will come to follow Christ, and we all submit to his revealed truth. This makes the church fundamentally different than anything else that exists in our society. Businesses are for-profit. They should have a target demographic. All sorts of groups are based on your interest or your hobbies or your stage of life. The church alone is intended to transcend and break all of those things. So our church should be multi-generational as every church of Christ should. And you'll notice in the New Testament that even though they're young churches, they're plants, they're all multi-generational. They all deal with older, younger, male, and female. All right, second thing I want to stress here is not only is it multi-generational, but it is both genders. And notice who is leading both genders. It is, in this case, Timothy and others in his role, a role of elder or pastor. Here's why I think Americans would do really well to hear this, because in America we have this cultural error that we assume is true. And, and here's essentially how it works. Unless you're from this group, you cannot speak to this group. So unless you're from this ethnic group, you can't talk about anything related to this ethnic group. Unless you grew up in this place, you can't mention anything related to those who live in this place. Unless you're a woman, you can't speak to women. Unless you're a man, you can't speak to men. But notice in the Bible, he's actually told to exhort and encourage both men and women, both old and young. And do you know why? Because truth transcends us all. And so we're all to fall under the authority of God's truth, regardless of our stage of life, regardless of our gender, regardless of our experiences. It doesn't matter if we've walked a mile in each other's shoes when God has told us where the path should lead us. So Timothy is in his manner to encourage and exhort. And now let's look at the categories. So verse 1, he's to come alongside older men, but in the respect and humility that you would approach your own father. He is to encourage them, and, and that may even include challenge them, but always with a very respectful demeanor. He's to do so with younger men, but not in a censorious, hey, listen, son, I've been there and done all this stuff, but more in a brotherly way. He's to talk to older women as he would his own mother with respect and grace and care. And he's to approach younger women as he would sisters with purity and no hint of impropriety. Now, did you notice that all will need to be exhorted at times? That's the nature of being a sinner saint. We're all still in the progress of our growth and journey with Christ, which means all of us will continue to need to be encouraged and exhorted and challenged. Now, the Bible says that everyone in the church does this. Hebrews 10 says, encourage one another daily. Do not forsake the assembling, but encourage one another. So we might call that every member ministry. All of us need to encourage one another. But even within that big circle... There is a subcircle of a distinct group who are supposed to lead in such. And Hebrews tells us that as well. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them because they're keeping watch over your souls to those who will give an account. Let them watch over you with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now you have First Timothy open. Look in chapter 4, verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 12. Paul tells Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and faith and love and purity. So we need leaders to set 
An example. Now look to 1 Timothy 5, 17. What bookends the passage we're in? Look in chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, obviously, we're in a church building right now, and so maybe you're already convinced of what I'm about to say. Maybe it's a reminder to you, but maybe it'd be very helpful to someone you talk to who says, hey, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I kind of have my own thing. Everyone needs to know that God tells us in his word, God wants every believer to have leaders. God wants every believer to have pastors, shepherds, who know them, who are familiar with what's happening in their life, who are able to help apply truth to their specific situation. So it's very Western and individualistic to say, well, I just kind of have my own spiritual pipeline, but God actually intends every believer to have leaders who are shepherding them, caring for them, acquainted with them. Well, now the rest of the passage moves from the general culture the whole church has of respect and grace and communal care to how we care for those who are specifically in need, namely widows. And at this point, you might wonder how this would be applicable to you. Well, why is there so much time on widows in particular? This is a huge chunk of 1 Timothy. It's a huge chunk of many of the New Testament letters and of some of the old. Why is this such a big deal? Let me give a couple of reasons. Well, one of them is cultural historical, right? In the first century, there's no assisted living facilities. There's no nursing homes. There's also no planes or trains or cars. So you very likely live with your family members. It'd be very unusual for you to live far from them. But is there anything we can learn from this now? We live in a day of large amounts of government, nonprofit, or even private business options that are promoted to meet the needs of those who have experienced loss or grief. So what role should the family play now in the post-industrial age? What role should the church play now as we live with a myriad of programs for those in need? Well, here's the thesis I'll try to show you from Scripture. We as Christians motivated by the gospel should still care for the needs of those around us, especially our relational and church family members. R. Kent Hughes explains that Christian sons and daughters are responsible for their parents, grandparents, and their church family, despite the cultural nets of social security, retirement benefits, and interest on investments. He writes, I think, very wisely. If financial provision is unneeded, there is still a Christian obligation for hands-on loving care. Nurses may be employed, but there must be more, a level of care that cannot be done by proxy. Emotional neglect and abandonment is not an option for a Christian because, as we'll read in verse 8, that is worse than living like an unbeliever. The conduct of Christians in this area will be distinct. R. Kent Hughes, by the way, writes from experience. His mother... Uh, lost her husband, his father, when she was only 23 years old, and she had three boys already at that time. Her own mother was also widowed. Her sister was also widowed and only had a daughter. So his entire family line was all of these women who had lost their husbands. He writes about that. Sadly, our church, though it was evangelical, never did anything to help. Now, in our culture today, you could argue 
that the application of widows is even wider because we have people who leave their marriage. We have people who are needy for various reasons. And so there are needy people within our congregation from various standpoints, and all of us have a way in which we will help impact or hopefully relate to them. So now number two on your bulletin, the gospel compels Christians first to look after our own family members, especially when weak, vulnerable, and dying. All right, verse three is where we are now, okay? Verse 75, verse three, honor widows who are truly Widows. I really don't want you to hop around all morning, but one more time. What does the word honor mean? Look in verse 17 and 18, then you'll know. You don't need a Greek dictionary for this one. What does honor mean? Verse 17 and 18 tells you. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Okay, what is honor then? Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his Wages. So notice honor is not merely respect, but also financial aid. So now that we're back to verse 3, honoring widows means caring for them financially, practically, and respecting them. But verse 3 introduces a category of true widows. Who are true widows? What makes them distinct from any widow? And the text will now give us an answer. A true widow is a widow who does not have family to care for her. If she has family, they must be taught to care for her. Look in verse 4. If a widow has children or grandchildren, obviously assuming they're of age and means, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make, and I love this phrase, some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. This theme will be brought up throughout the passage. In verse 8, it says, if you do not provide for your own relatives. In verse 16, if you do not have any relatives. There are so many ways that perhaps our parents cared for us that we are not aware of. Thus, it is a blessing to give some return. Right now, our children are young, and so I write to them because my father told me to try to write memories of different things that we're doing. And as I've looked over some of the things I've written over the last nearly 10 years, uh, I see things that I forgot that, that we did. I remember when they were like in chronic crying mode. I remember one time we didn't have air conditioning and we were driving the kids back from camp. And so we just could not get my daughter <laughs> to stop crying. And so we sang at the top of our lungs over the air moving through the car because there was a broken air conditioning unit for three hours <laughs> straight. And I remember getting home and I, I couldn't feel my voice and feeling really hoarse. and like, can I just put these kids to bed? But then I thought, man, how many things like this that my parents did for me that I don't remember? So verse, it's a really beautiful phrase in the text that says, give some return, give some return. Many ways you've been blessed that you don't know. Perhaps this morning you're thinking, well, Josh, my parents were awful. And perhaps they were. What an opportunity then to give grace to the undeserving. In either case, we're to care for our own family members. Now verse 5, though, talks about one who is a true widow. So verse 5, she who is truly a widow, notice, is left all alone. So she has no living family members or at least none old enough to care for her or with the means. But notice further, and this is interesting, one who would be cared for by the church is also one who has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Notice then that the church has a priority to 
we shouldn't be surprised, God's household, their brothers and sisters. Galatians 6.10 tells us, do good to all men, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Sometimes as churches, we accidentally flip this. We rightly have a heart towards mercy ministry to people outside of the walls of the church, and that is a good and right thing. But we can sometimes invert that to the neglect of those who God has actually placed in our family. This text makes very clear we ought not do that. Our primary responsibility are our brothers and sisters. So a widow who's a believer and who's truly alone is where the ongoing support of the church first goes. But look in verse 6, a warning for those who are widowed. She who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Now that's a strong verse. Here God tells a widow, someone who's endured incredible grief, that she must not live for self-indulgence. If you're wondering what self-indulgence is, it's the opposite of verse 5. It's the opposite of having your hope set on God. The opposite of your hope set on God is your self-indulgence. The word is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's used in James 5.5, 5, but it clearly means sinful self-indulgence, sinful personal pleasure. So some might come to the church for financial aid, but just so they can spend it on sinful pursuits, the church there should be wise enough to realize if that person is spiritually dead. Dante illustrated this in his Inferno. He is a character, Friar Albergio, whose soul Dante sees in hell, even though his body is still on earth. Now, to be clear, uh, Dante's not an accurate theologian, so I'm not commending all of his work. But that one piece is illustrative of the fact that you can appear physically fine, but you're actually spiritually dead. It's a sobering warning. Some people have physical life, but they are spiritually dead, even those who are in the church's purview, according to verse 6. Now, verses 7 through 8 goes further. Command these things as well, so they may be without reproach the pronoun they in verse 7. Who's it referring to? Is it referring to the widows we just read about? I, I don't think so. I think it's referring to the children and grandchildren. The children and grandchildren should not be with reproach. They need to care for their relatives, as verse 8 will make clear. Verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his own relatives, especially for members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If you thought verse 6 was strong, here's verse 8. This is now two times in as many verses that Paul has said there are some people who profess to know God who actually don't. Their life bears out the fact they're not born again. They don't even care about their own family members. I've always liked um, D.A. Carson. He's just a very helpful New Testament scholar, but he sometimes writes books that are just normal, accessible narratives. And one of my favorites is his book, Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. It's about his own dad. When his dad was a pastor in Canada, he was a pastor in a French-speaking area, and he pastored for years in a small congregation that just never seemed to have any growth. And his dad became so discouraged that he eventually left the pastorate. He left the pastorate when his son, Don, D.A., was a freshman at, at, at college. And so he's gone at school, and he simply receives a note saying, uh, we believe we can no longer serve here. We're, we're thankful for what God has done, but we're leaving the ministry and we're moving to the other side of Canada. And so when Don got home, you know, what, what's going on? What, what's the plan? And so his father moved to become an interpreter for the Canadian government because he knew French and English both very well. 
When he became an interpreter, his father wrote this in his journal, quoting the King James translation of 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. Son, I have to support for my own family because the Bible says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Carson, reflecting back on his father, wrote, there were few times in my life that I had greater respect for my dad to make sure that he would care for the needs of his family. Now, notice the wisdom of the Bible. We must be willing to help those in need, but we should never do so without discernment. You could potentially help someone and hurt them in the long run by not teaching their family to provide for them when they are capable of providing for them. These kind of principles, by the way, would be extremely helpful for legislative policies as well. So one, two, now number three on your bulletin, the gospel compels now the church. First, there's a culture in verse one. Then there's a pastor's responsibility in verse two or verses one and two. Then there's the families in verses three through eight. But now verses nine through 10, the gospel compels the church to be a family for those without caring relatives. Verse nine, let a widow be enrolled. And here we have the first presentation of a list. And I'll explain what that list is later. It's a little confusing. Is it a list for those who need financial aid or is it a list for those who are serving? I'll explain as we get to verse 16. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. Verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows. Again, we have the word enroll or list. Is Paul saying that if you're under 60, you can't be helped by the church, as was the case in R. Kent Hughes' mother, who was only 23? I don't think so. I think this is a special list, and we'll get to that in a moment. But the warnings here are very important. Refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith, or you may have pledge in your translation. If it's faith, it means they've left the faith, the truth, the gospel that they seemed to give lip service to. If it's pledge, it means they had pledged to serve as widows, but in fact, they really weren't ready for that. Well, the text may have some ambiguities, but the big point is clear enough. And I sadly have seen it in my own life many times, which is why I have to be careful to not give too many details to my illustration. But I've had a number of these things happen in my own extended family and in churches that I've pastored. I've seen it sadly happen many times where someone suddenly horribly loses their spouse and it's an awful thing, maybe through death, maybe through departure. But then they handle that pain very unwisely and they start a relationship that they should not have started. And then five or 10 years later, they're in a worse situation than they were before. This is precisely the pain that God intends to protect us from in this warning. Those who are younger widows need to be cautious that they do not exchange their loneliness for a relationship that will in the long run be worse and others actually have to help them from making such a dangerous decision. 
And verses 13 and 14, which also sound very harsh, are loving warnings that remind us that we need a purpose to live for. So verse 13, besides that, they may learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. Verse 14, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. The principle is really rather obvious that we all need a God-glorifying purpose for our life because maybe your parents told you idle hands are the devil's playground. With that sort of openness, it's just too easy to stray in the wrong direction. So verse 16. So if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. The gospel shapes the church, shapes us as individuals in such a way that if we have needs that we don't need assistance with, we won't ask or take assistance. It also changes us as a church so that we'll give assistance as freely as we can, but we'll have mercy with prudence, with discernment for the spiritual health of everyone involved, not merely addressing the temporary need. So the enroll or list, I said we'd address that. It was in verse 9 and 11. What is this list that they're enrolled to? Is it ongoing financial aid? Is it service? I think the answer is probably both. Commentators are a little split here. Guthrie and Hughes both suggest that maybe it's a further list. Um, I think George Knight, if you wanted to read him, his New Testament interaction with the Greek is outstanding. He explains in summary that this list is for those with ongoing aid and perhaps even formal service. This arrangement implies that the church has a permanent arrangement with only certain qualified widows with mutual accepted commitments and potential responsibilities. So it is good for a church to know specific people that it cares for in an ongoing way, people who have specific needs. And it's good for those being cared for to find specific ways they can serve others as well. That's the simple point that I think Paul is making. Well, this whole sermon, I've said the gospel compels. The gospel compels. But how can I say that? How does the gospel compel this kind of sacrificial care for those in need? And I think we see this most clearly in John 19 when Jesus is on the cross. On the cross, Jesus literally is bearing the weight of human sin, of all of us. He has more on his shoulders than merely the physical pain that we can see, though that alone is awful enough. And yet while on the cross, Jesus says this aloud in John 19. He looks out to his mother Mary and says, Woman, behold your son. Now she's already watching. She's already an eyewitness to his crucifixion. So what can he mean when he says to Mary, Behold your son. Well, he explains with the next thing he says out loud. He says to the disciple John, behold your mother. See, what Jesus is doing in his final moments of life is making sure that his mother would not be widowed without care. 
Most commentators believe that Joseph had died by this point, which is why we never read about him again by the time Jesus is grown. But Jesus, while he's bearing the weight of our sin, the estrangement from the Father, the physical pain that is incalculable, thinks about who will look after Mary after he is gone. That heart is not surprising because Jesus is God the Son. On our business card or CV, we may have a summary that says what we're about God does this many times where he gives a summary of what he's about. I love Psalm 68, verse 5. I, the Lord, am a father of the fatherless, a protector of widows. He writes in Psalm 146, verse 9, The Lord watches over sojourners. The Lord upholds the widow and the fatherless. God's heart fundamentally is to care for those in need, especially those who've endured great grief. So let me say to you this morning, if any of you this morning have grief or pain or sorrow or care, there is a God who cares about you. There is a God who loves you. There is a God who can uphold you and give you rest. Bring your burden to him. But know then, if you are one of his followers... His character must characterize us. In fact, if you know the Old Testament prophets well, when they're saying how Israel has so departed from God, one of the recurring things they bring up is that Israel started to overlook their widows. Jeremiah 22, Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness. Deliver from the hand of the oppressor who's been robbed. Do no wrong to the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow. And then here's what God concludes in Jeremiah 22, verse 16. Is not this what it means to know me? So God says, caring for those in need, especially widows, that's what it means in practicality to know me. See, Christian, here's what makes us distinct from the rest of humanity. Many people in, in, in our culture have programs to care for those in need, and I'm thankful for this. But on a motivational level, our motivation for caring for those in need is not so that we can feel better about ourselves. Our caring for those in need is not merely to have a better society that functions smoothly. Our care for those in need is because there's someone who loved us when we were unlovely. Our care for those in need is because we have a father who loves us as sinners. This makes our love different. It goes further. It lasts longer. It embraces the undesirable. Only the Christian motivation can sustain the blessing that comes from loving even when it's sacrificial. But though it may be sacrificial you probably have experienced in your own life that it's also of great blessing. A number of years ago, my wife's grandmother was declining in health. And so we were able to coordinate with her so that my wife's grandmother lived with us for a summer. We called her Gigi, short for great grandma. Uh, I think my daughter was only about a year and a half at the time. Having her made differences to our schedule. Having her in our home made differences to our plans. Having her in our home made differences to our freedoms. But we would never change the joy it was of having her in our home. 
Having her in our home gave us the vision of walking out into the family room each morning. And she was always up before me, which always made me feel even worse (laughs) about myself. And she always had her Bible open on her lap. She would pray for our family, pray for our ministry. And I think Evangeline learned to read primarily from her. Now, at this moment, she's with the Lord. We only had a short time that we had that possibility, but that time was the best time. So, Emmanuel, this matters for how you live in your own family. If you have aging parents, relatives, do you have a plan for them? Have you thought about that financially? Have you thought about that emotionally? Have you thought about that relationally? I know it's not always in our power. I've been praying for some house in Raleigh to somehow become cheap so my parents can move down here. I know it's not always in our power. But as much as it is in our power, do everything you can. So there's some plan that when they're in that stage, you're there. And you need to tell me as your pastor if you have relatives who aren't looking after you because that's part of my responsibility to pursue them and teach them how they ought to live and perhaps share the gospel to them. But as a church, we need to have plans in terms of how we do this for our own brothers and sisters. Remember in Acts, that's why deacons exist. To make sure widows are not overlooked. So this should define the way we behave. And our mercy will be tempered by prudence. But finally this morning, I wonder if you've noticed in the Bible how the widow shows us what saving faith is. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus raises from the dead a widow's one and only son. The only thing she says to the widow is, do not weep. That means that the widow's only heart was desperation. Have you ever come to Jesus so aware of how desperate your condition is, you maybe couldn't even articulate it with words, but you knew, I need him to give me life. (laughs) I need him to help me. The widow shows us that. But the widow shows us it a second time in the same gospel of Luke. In Luke 21, verses 1 through 4, there are all these people giving their offerings And the rich give large amounts. And then a widow comes, and the King James says she only gives two mites, two small copper coins, the smallest level of currency. Do you know what Jesus says about that woman? Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. It didn't actually change their ground of trust. But she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. That's what saving faith is. Saving faith is when you come to Jesus and you give him everything. I have no other ground of security. I have no other hope of standing before God. I have no other confidence of where I'll spend eternity. I have no other way that I could say I deserve to stand before the Father. I give everything I have to live on, and I trust it with you. So learn from the widow. Come acknowledging your true need, and then trust everything to Jesus. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, We are so grateful that you have a heart for the desperate, the hurting, and the grieving. That Jesus came for the least, the last, and the lost.
because that actually describes all of us. So by showing us your heart for the widow, you show us that God so loved the world that he gave his own son. So Lord, this morning we first have to acknowledge we may look presentable to other people. People may think highly of us, but you know us for who we really are. And we can only come before you desperately saying, oh God, I, I don't deserve a relationship with you. I am a sinful person. I deserve to be separated from you, but have mercy on me, a sinner. I give every ounce of trust to you. And Lord, you save because of what Jesus did in our place. So help someone today to make that decision to quit thinking that they have ground of their own merit, but to move all they once lived on to trust in Jesus alone. But Lord, that ought to characterize a follower of Jesus. Help it to characterize our own family life. Help us to think about those in need. Help us to think about those who are aging. Help us to think about those who are vulnerable. And it ought to characterize our church as well. Help us to be prudent so that we are not unwise and actually hurt people by helping them inappropriately. But help our heart desire be to help people so that it is seen that there's a motivation that's bigger than how it makes me feel. There's a motivation that's bigger than if society can run smooth enough that it works well. There's a motivation that there's a God who gives up everything to save his enemies. And may that glorify your name, Lord. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.